and uh, we'll get them to you. Psalm 46. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah, not a psalm of David. This is a psalm that's been sung for thousands of years to comfort God's people. It's an amazing psalm. It's one that when you're going through a trial, uh, one that is taking the oxygen out of the room, one that is strangling you, this is one that you need to turn to. And tonight I pray that it ministers to you. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, Though the mountains shake with its swelling. And then it says, Selah. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just, as the, uh, just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. And he uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. And so that'll be our passage. Lord, bless our time, we pray. I pray comfort upon the congregation. I thank you, Lord, that you've assembled us for such a time as this. And Lord, there are probably some folks in here right now that are just so thankful that uh, you had them in mind when you picked this psalm. So, Lord, would you minister to them as you minister to all of us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. I looked at uh, some contemporary thoughts in regards to this psalm. And uh, this is a psalm that uh, President Obama has quoted quite often in some of his speeches. Um, I like what one person wrote in relation to this psalm. He said, For several decades, a popular rumor has persisted that William Shakespeare placed his mark on the translated text of Psalm 46 that appears in the King James Bible. Although scholars view this as unlikely, by coincidence, the 46th word from the beginning of Psalm 46 is shake. And the 46th word from the end, omitting, of course, the, litur- uh, the liturgical mark, Selah, is spear. Shakespeare was in the King James service during the preparation of the King James Bible, and he was 46 years old in 1611 when the translation was completed. Mm, something that makes you go, hmm. It's pretty much worthless. So <laughs> thought I'd just throw that at you. Interesting. Psalm 46 is a great comfort, uh, especially when we're going through great trials in our life. I think for a moment as we, we pause and we, we think of those things that devastate us. When I walked into Kathy Lejeune's home 
as I was walking up to the front of the door, I saw Chris on the front lawn. And he was looking at me. It almost looked as though he had a stern look on his face. If I didn't know better, I'd think he was maybe mad at me. And I got out of my car and I'm walking up to him as I'd gotten the text that Kathy had gone to be with the Lord. And I'd hurried over there. I'd just been with uh, Betty Johnson, whose husband had died. And now I was heading over to meet with Chris, whose wife had just died. And I got to the, to the front lawn. And he stood there looking at me. And I, I didn't know what he was going to say. Or his, his father-in-law was next to him. And as I started to approach, um, it's one of those things that you, you really don't know what to expect when you walk into a home. Uh, in, in, in ministry, it's one of those things for me that brings greatest anxiety. Because folks are going to look to you to bring comfort. And there's a lot of pressure. Um, becomes a little bit difficult at times. So walking up to the the front lawn and seeing Chris there looking at me. And as I got closer, Chris said, uh, she's in glory. And I said, yeah, she is. She really is. And he gave me a big hug. He said, let's go inside and see her. And he said, oh, wait, let's go inside and see her shell. And we walked inside and and, uh, there was... Chris's daughter, Jenny, holding her mom's hand. And everyone around was happy but sad. And you you looked at it and you think, this is what she had worked towards. She had her eyes on the prize, the upward calling of, you know, the heavenly call of of Christ Jesus. And um, I looked at him and I just said, Kathy's rejoicing. She has a new body eternal in the heavens. There's, there's no sickness, no sadness, no sorrow. And, you, and you, when you looked at, at the shell she left behind, I'll tell you what, this woman used every ounce of energy remaining in that riddled body. And every time you were around her, she had nothing but kind things to say around the, uh, to the people around her. She was... Um, she was a faithful, regular attender of our Sunday night prayer service. She, she would come and she would, I'd never seen her without a wig. And as she was, not, you know, in the bed there, the wig wasn't there and her hair was short because she had lost it with the endless radiation. And I remember the first time that I had found out she had cancer. I didn't even know. Kathy and Chris would come and they would, they would fervently pray in circles for people. Uh, she would send out this newsletter every week about wonderful things that she'd learned from the Lord. And Mondays for me are very difficult as a minister. Um, they're somewhat depressing. And when I opened my emails, there would be uh, her email on Monday morning and it would always be an encouragement to me. And I remember the first time I found out she had cancer, I, I, was, I was stunned. I just didn't realize that it was a it was a good looking wig and uh started i guess in her breast cancer went to her brain and then was riddled throughout her body and when i had met uh, todd paulson when his wife tanya was dying 
and found the connection that Tanya and Kathy were the best of friends and they had gone through chemo together and their whole purpose was to share Christ with every person they came into contact with. And when you would go into these chemotherapy sessions, uh, people would say that they would pour death into you and that you would be vomiting and you'd be sick. And they walked in with a whole different perspective. They said, this is liquid gold. It's giving us life. They would, they would see everything through the eyes of the Lord. They'd ask God to use it for his glory. They would pray before they go to the chemotherapy sessions. They'd ask God to do a wonderful work in and through them. To the point where when we, at Tanya's funeral, when we opened up the podium for people to share and had the nurses come up, and what they shared was, was so moving. You could just see that their lives had been so powerfully impacted by the way that Tanya and Kathy had lived. And Tanya was in the funeral service. Excuse me, Kathy was in the funeral service for her friend Tanya. And uh, she was still optimistic that uh, there's another chance here and uh, I'm going to keep doing it until, you know, God says that's it. She had a chance to see her grandbaby and got to experience all kinds of blessings in life and imparted to her daughter Jenny a, a faith a strength. You know, I'm looking at Jenny as she's by her mother's bedside. And, and Jenny just had this understanding of, of what her mother had imparted to her. And I looked at that and I thought, these are folks that had faced insurmountable odds. These are folks that had faced mountains of misery. And they came away with the joy of the Lord. And I think about us, how the littlest things set us off and the anger and the irritation that we level on one another um, and how petty we can be. And yet when you look at someone like Kathy, every day was a gift. Every day was a gift. And every day she lived, she lived for others. That is the antithesis of us. Every day we live, we live for ourselves. To be asked to do something for someone else is a burden. To be asked to do something for someone else is a burden. And, and when you do it, you only do it to the extent that it's going to you know, be good enough for government work. You don't go above and beyond. You just do that and move along. That wasn't Kathy. How did she do that? How did she face every day with the joy of the Lord, waking up seeing this mountain of cancer? How did she wake up every day knowing that this could be her last day? How did she wake up every day seeing her hair falling out and watching as she would minister to her husband and his faith would be strengthened? I I was touched. I looked at Sid, Sid Johnson. You'd think, okay, Sid, come on, give it a rest. I mean, you've been married 70 years. You're a World War II vet. You're at the end of your life. Why are you doing the chemotherapy? Why are you doing the radiation? Give it a rest. And yet, Sid's desire was to live long enough to minister to his wife. He, he didn't want his wife to be alone. So he endured the intensity of these things even though his body was frail and 
aged, he endured that for the sake of someone else. We are so selfish as human beings. We, we barely can get out of our own head, let alone get into the life of someone else. Jesus marveled at the ingratitude of mankind. When the ten lepers were healed, only one came back to say thank you. We take from God continually. We receive from him continually. But very seldom do we thank him. I was uh, with a sister in the Lord today talking, and one of the things that blessed me was this idea of going down the list of gratitude and thankfulness. Life gets a lot easier when you're thankful. Look, I, I can tell you right now, just looking around the room, I can tell you right now, everybody's got budgetary constraints. Everybody. But whenever you're thankful, whatever you have is enough. And when you spend time thanking the Lord, you come to realize that what you have is enough. It's when you take your eyes off the Lord and you start listening to the world that you get caught in that trap of discontentedness. And then you are just prone to abuse by the enemy and, and being battered by the enemy. And then wave after wave of trial will come. And it's not if, it's when. And, and, and how, do you, how do you fathom that? I've shared with you often the story of walking into a home as a sheriff's chaplain. And the minute I walked into this house, not knowing what to, you know, it just having no idea what to expect, I walked in and they handed me their dead baby. And they said, fix it. Do something. And everybody's wailing at the top of their lungs, and they're all crying. And this, the sadness is intense, and the, the heartache is so evident. And there are people without hope. I would share with them from the scriptures, and you could see their, their heart lifted. And then they would depart from, from this, and they would go into a room to go through the rituals of a religion that they knew very little about, but that they had grown up with. They began to read from some book. And as they went through the rituals of, of whatever it was they were doing, it, it almost seemed empty and void of meaning. And a darkness fell upon the room and the home. And then that would end, and one by one they they would make their way back to me, and they would ask questions, or they would long for answers. And as you would, you would share the words of life, their hearts would be lifted again. And if, you know, I, I, I wasn't called into that house to bring the baby back to life. I was called into that house to bring that house to life. God's word is living, it's breathing, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And I could see I could see the, the, the word of God manifesting itself in life as it was being spoken. 
And it was powerful. I, I've shared often, I hate going to hospitals. And when I say hate, I, it, it, it's, it's the antithesis of my flesh. I, my flesh does not want to be in hospitals. I don't want to be there. But I, I know that the minute I walk into that room, the Lord anoints me. And this isn't pride speaking. This is, this is one of those things that I, I know that the minute I walk into that room and I'm fighting God every step of the way, going up the elevator, even putting the stupid visitor tag on, you know, getting the sanitation stuff and all of it, walking into the room, chest is tight, anxiety. I walk through the room and immediately this peace that surpasses all understanding comes upon me. And I see the person in the bed and I begin to speak to them and their heart is lifted and the word of God begins to minister and you just see a joy uh, reestablished in the room. That's the power of God's word. And so when the psalmist writes this, he begins by saying, God is our refuge and our strength. God, God. The psalmist begins with just a simple phrase, God. I would ask you tonight, what is your refuge and strength? When all hell breaks loose, what do you turn to? What are you banking on? You know, the the world rages. They mock God. Psalm 14 says that the fool says in in his heart that there is no God. But the world has reversed that. They said that that the Christian is a fool because he says there is a God. But when you follow Psalm 14 and you you go through it in, in its entirety, you see this picture that there's abomination, there's destruction, there's calamity, there's heartache. Nobody can be trusted. What is a world when you remove absolutes? What is a world when you remove morality? What is a world when you have nothing that can be a foundation? I've often said that when you remove a foundation or you remove a boundary marker, you might want to ask why it's there before you remove it. I've often said also that any jackass can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. And it seems as though what's in vogue is to knock down all of these institutions that have been around for hundreds of years because somehow we're enlightened. I've been loosely following a thread in the acorn about a pastor who had written something and everybody is ridiculing him. That this is a new age and, and, and your thoughts are archaic and you need to give it up. Well, you may think so. But absolutes will always be with us and they will be archaic. They govern us. These are laws that govern the universe. And they're spiritual laws that govern the universe. And when we come to that understanding that God is the one that holds the heavens in the span of his hand, God is the one who establishes the laws of the universe, that these are natural laws, 
that they're immutable and they're, they're established by God. And no matter how much we want to redefine them, it doesn't change. I'll give you a perfect, uh, a perfect example. Um, let's do this. In a, a homosexual relationship, right? You have in a lesbian relationship or a, a, a homosexual male relationship, there's going to be two guys or two girls. And they live together long enough, what are you going to have? You're going to have one that takes on the dominant male role and one that takes on the submissive feminine role. Yes? We call it butch and femme, right? Why? Because it's been hardwired into our DNA in accordance with Ephesians 5 and 6 that the it says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. So you can have, you can have two women leading a house. You can have two men leading a house. One's going to be butch. One's going to be femme. And the children, uh, listen to your mother, father, dad. You know, and that's a little confusing, but there's going to be an order of authority in that home. It's hardwired. It's hardwired. And you deal with that. And you can't get around it. These are laws that govern the universe. John Locke called them natural law. Now, of course, in our day and age, uh, and I, I received a book from David Lane we we have abdicated uh, civil government as though somehow the church is not supposed to be involved in civil government. Well, if the church isn't going to be involved in civil government, then we create a vacuum. Who's going to write the laws in civil government if Christians aren't going to be involved? And will will those laws reflect the natural laws of God that bring the greatest peace to mankind when we're operating in the context for which God created us. I mean, even when it comes to wealth, why were the Ten Commandments created? To protect private property. Because when you honor God, you're going to be blessed. There will be private property. When you, when you enter into an honest business dealing, and with a, 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 a handshake, you're going to be able to establish that that person's going to benefit. You're going to benefit. That is what creates wealth. And then that wealth is to be protected in a society. And business dealings are going to be done through honesty. But if you remove God from the equation, anything goes. Anything. No one can be trusted. Everything is, is simply an abomination. And so God is our refuge and he is our strength. Don't forget that. Christian, listen, it doesn't matter what the world does. The first portion of this psalm is something that has to resonate and sink deeply into your soul. God, listen, God, God is your refuge and he is your strength. What is a refuge? It's a place you run to. It's a place you run to. What is strength? It's that which allows you to do the heavy lifting. 
When you're weak, he is strong. The Bible says in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. And so God is our refuge and our strength. And here's the other part. A very, not just a present help, a very present help in trouble. Has anyone ever tried to call me on my cell phone? Could you raise your hand? Okay, a few of you. (laughs) Thanks, babe. Have you always reached me? No. I am not God. I'm probably asleep. Actually, I see you calling and I just, I, I just bypass it. No, I don't. Oftentimes we want somebody to give us an answer. We want somebody flesh and blood to be able to give us an answer. But the Bible says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so he is a very present help in trouble. I don't think we understand that. I don't think we understand that. When someone comes up to you and says, I'm struggling with this, and I'm struggling with that, grab them and say, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ah. Oh, we're in a restaurant. I really don't want to. Why? He's right here right now. He's waiting to meet that need in the riches of Christ. Exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or imagine. Grab him right there and pray with him. Pray yourself. Teach your kids the same thing. Uh, I, I take my son Daniel uh, to school in the mornings. And every time I'm leaving the house, my wife says, don't forget to pray with Daniel. And as we're, we're driving down um, Reno Road towards the school, Daniel says, Dad, I, 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 th- I think we need to start praying now. Mom usually starts praying about right now. <laughs> I'm like, that woman prays a long time then, son. I don't think I'm going to have a, all right, let's, all right. Let me, let me turn off ACDC and we'll. <laughs> Just kidding. And so we begin to pray. But some of the things I, I, I do with Daniel is I, I say, Daniel, what are you struggling with right now? What are some of the concerns you're having? Well, Dad, the, the slide on my locker's not working. Well, let's pray about that. Yeah, let's do that. Would you ever think to pray about a slide on a locker? Well, that's, that's too small for God. Is it really? You know how much joy it brings the Lord when you're asking him that? You know, Dad, my, my wrist is hurting. Well, let's pray for that. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the, the speed that's required in the English class to get these exercises done. All right, let's cover that. And each thing we cover in prayer. Is there anything else that's heavy on your heart? Anything at all? Anything that troubles you? Um, and as he's thinking about it, perfect. Let's bring that to the Lord. What else, son? And we just go through each of those. By the time we get to the school, we open up the door. He says, love you, Dad. He gives me a kiss. What freshman 14-year-old gives his dad a kiss in front of all the students? That's the Lord. And as I'm driving away, he's giving me the I love you sign. If I did that in my school, I would have been beat up. (laughs) He is a very present help 
a very present help, a very present help in trouble. Tonight, if you have trouble, you need not get past that first verse. Stop and meditate on that. You have been trying to keep these plates spinning on your own. And it is a royal waste of time. Quit being so worried and anxious. Take advantage of the presence of your God. And he is a help. He's not going to look at you and go, what do you want now? Do you realize how busy I am? I am running the universe. That's why the psalmist says he is a very present help in time of trouble. It doesn't even qualify the trouble. Whatever it is, call on him. Call on him. And then I love the word therefore. After you do verse 1, the psalmist says, therefore, we will not fear. Isn't that what worry brings? Anxiety and fear. You lay awake at night. You spend countless hours and energy worrying. And it accomplishes absolutely nothing. Nothing. And God's saying, hello, I don't sleep. I don't slumber. There's no shadow in my turning. That phone rings. I answer it before it rings. I know you're calling before you call. I'm waiting for you to call. I'm ready to help you. I have all the resources of heaven waiting for you to call. But you would rather lay in your bed, toss and turn, trying to find the cool side of the pillow, annoying your spouse next to you, looking at all the figures on the ceiling as you're moving your portfolio, trying to figure out how you're going to survive this economic malaise, or the downturn in the economy, or the layoff, and what you're going to do, and how you're going to survive. And God's saying, would you please call me so you can go to bed? You need some rest. The Bible says the Lord gives rest to those he loves. The problem is we don't want the rest. We'd rather engage in the worry. We somehow think our worry is effective. And it isn't. It's toxic. It's what's killing you. And when you call on that very present help in trouble, the result is, therefore, the fear is dissipated. It's gone. My son, as we're driving, often begins a conversation with, Dad, did you struggle in English class? <laughs> son, yeah, you don't want to be asking me that question. I, I don't even remember going to English class. <laughs> son, my first term paper, somebody wrote for me and put it in my mailbox. I, uh, I said, son, I was an athlete. 
I was not a good student until I got to college and the Lord started to take hold of my heart. I said, but I do remember the anxiety. I remember the fear. I didn't know the Lord back then. I knew the embarrassment of turning in a paper that was going to get an F. I knew the shame and the humiliation of getting the papers back. I never saw my name at the top of the charts in any of the classrooms. Yeah, I, I, I know what it's like. I said, but son, you have something I don't have. And I said, son, and we, we, we stop in the school parking lot. And I said, son, look around. Look at all these kids. They're getting out of the car. Or some of them are walking. There's no parent to pray with them. Nobody's kissing them goodbye. No one is talking to them about the things of the Lord. But you have this wisdom at 14 years of age. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Son, you're, you're walking onto this campus. You already have a hand up. And you can show these other kids. That's why you're here, to lead them to Christ. And son, even that isn't a burden because you don't have to witness. The scripture says you'll be a witness. It's just going to be a natural byproduct of who you are. And, and so as, as we spend time doing this, he starts lifting to me all these fears. And then together we go to the Lord with those. And immediately, therefore, we will fear not. And even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar uh, and be troubled, and though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. That word Selah is, do you, do you understand? No matter the intensity of the calamity, God has got this. Do you, do you have a video set? Can you lower the lights? Listen to this. Even though the earth be removed and the lights be shot, this is is a tsunami. This is the intensity. You want to talk about calamity. When God speaks, look what happens. Look at the force and the power of the living God. And, and then you think, well, how can a loving God do this? How can he, he, how can he permit this? We think too highly of ourselves, and we ought to. And when you see things like this, you realize this is a powerful God. You can, you can pause it now. That's good. Though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, the earth be removed, though its waters roar and be troubled, and though the mountains shake with its swelling, what does God say to us? You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. I've got this. I've got this. And then the psalmist says in the midst of it, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. 
I think about this contrast of, of, of this tsunami tearing apart in a sinful, uh, well, a sinful world and all of the, um, the judgment and the misery that's coming through. And then you contrast that with God's people. There's a river. And for us, it's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And what is that river? I, I looked at a couple of passages. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 6 says, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he has swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt in your house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. And you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of, your, uh, of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. And then he contrasts that with Jeremiah chapter 2 and says, Has a nation changed its gods? Now, by the way, that's, that's a tsunami going through a nation that less than 1% of 1% of the nation is Christian. That's Japan. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed the, their glory for what does not profit. And then, he, and then the, Jeremiah says, Be astonished. O heavens at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And what God is saying is, you serve me, I'll give you vineyards you didn't plant, cisterns you didn't dig. There'll be an abundance in your life. But you forsake me, and you go after false gods, judgment will be yours. Life will not be pleasant. Fear will come upon you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But then it goes on to say that they, were, they, they will fear and tremble at that stage in their life. I remember as a youth pastor, Kids would, kids would whine and complain about the strict rules of their parents. My parents make me do curfew and they do thing and they make me read the Bible and I hate it. And they whine. And I'd look at the kids and I'd go, Hey, why don't you move out? Serious, move out. Just, where would I go to live? I mean, really, where would I go to live? You know how expensive it is to live around here? (laughs) And I'd look at him and I'd say, you operate outside the context of God. Your family serves the Lord, and the blessings are there. The cisterns are full. The vineyards are flourishing. There's food on the table. The roof doesn't leak. The lights turn on. 
the air conditioning works in the summer, your, your cars all operate. It's really lovely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's awesome. And you're over here living in hell. Yeah, because I, I want to do things my way. But you're not. No, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm the captain of my destiny. No, you're not. You're a leech. What do you mean I'm a leech? The only way this parasite can survive is because it's sucking off the life of a family that serves God. You're striking home over here. If we are to remove this parasite from the host, the parasite will die. Yes? And it's not a symbiotic relationship. You're not doing anything for the host. As a matter of fact, you're bringing heartache and misery and pain. Right? And, and, and so I tell him, I go, just, just go. Just move out. Be the captain of your own destiny. Well, no, I thought maybe you'd talk to my parents and tell them to lighten up a little bit. Why? The reason why their house is so beautiful and their life is so... The reason why your mom and dad are happily married is because they honor the Lord. They fear God. The reason why there's blessing is because they can be trusted when they go to work. They tell the truth. The reason why they're employable is because they do these things. That's why they have this. You, on the other hand, don't. If, if you were to be disconnected from the host, you would wither and die. And the world in which you dwell, they will devour you. You will last that long. They still don't get it. We're in a world of entitlement. Well, yeah, but they deserve to. They, they, they're supposed to take care of me. I'm their kid, man. Time's running out. And so, the beauty of it is for a family that trusts in the Lord and makes God their refuge and their strength, the beauty of it is um, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God and the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. I've got to hurry up. I'm late. God is in the midst of her. And she shall not be moved. God shall help her just as the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. And God uttered his voice and the earth melted. And the Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. I would just say that in this passage of scripture, you dwell on the realization, God wins. God wins. And the psalmist concludes by saying, come behold the works of the Lord who made desolations in the earth. You're either going to be on the right side of God or you're going to be on the left side of God. You're either going to be one who fears the Lord and flourishes and he is your refuge and he's your strength or you're going to be in the river of that tsunami and you're just going to be refuge that is 
a refuse that's just going down the river and you're going to be sucked up in the misery of the world. God is high ground. Get to high ground. And that's the picture of the psalm. And I went long. Sorry about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I was thinking of the woman at the well in John 4. This idea of living water. This cistern. Lord, this this idea that it was living water. And when you say a river whose streams make glad the city of God. She wanted a drink. But Lord, you said that if she took a drink from this water, she would never thirst again. And Lord, that river that you speak of in this psalm, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Lord, that's in your presence. And our confidence is in you. That's the believer's confidence. Lord, that you're our refuge, you're our hiding place, you're our harbor, our shelter, you're our strength, you're our help, a very present help in time of trouble. And Lord, as your children, all we have to do is say, Lord, help me and you will. And I pray, God, that tonight we would get our eyes off of our problems and we would realize that, Lord, you are very present. All we have to do is say, Lord, help me. God, let us set that example in our homes that fear would dissipate and faith would increase. The world is fraught with fears. We're afraid of everything. And men's hearts are failing because of fear. And Lord, I think of, you know, even with Syria and everything else, everybody's on edge. The earth is going to be moved, but God is not moved. Lord, none of this phases you. And we're your kids. And so, God, I pray that we would find our strength in you, even though the heathens would rage and they would mock us. Lord, we have what they don't. We have security. And so, God, we rejoice. The greatness of our God, the Lord of hosts. We praise you and we thank you this night for what you've done and continue to do. Bring peace to your people and comfort in these times of trial. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry I went long. There's no time for questions. You're dismissed. God bless you. (laughs)